gather those believers and strengthen them. They would begin to disciple them, teaching them God's word and, and helping them know what it meant to, to follow Christ, to follow in the way of Christ. But then, it, we, then we see after he does this, he goes back through those same cities and those same towns and he begins to appoint elders in every town. It says in verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. These are places that Paul and his co-workers had already been sharing the gospel, um, and, and now he's going back to those places, and it says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and say that many tribulations, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And then, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord, and whom they had believed. You see, Paul wasn't just a traveling evangelist who went about uh, every town telling people about Jesus and then going on his way, leaving them to fend for themselves. God's vision is for people to come to faith in Christ and to be strengthened as disciples. This is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 28 when he calls us to make disciples. And so God's vision is for uh, believers to come together in the local church with faithful leaders appointed uh, to lead and shepherd them so that we can complete and fulfill the Great Commission to make disciples. And so uh, within the local church, we see throughout the New Testament, there are two offices that are given to the church. One is elders or pastors. We're going to see these terms are used synonymously, interchangeably in, in Scripture. And the second are deacons, which we will look at in more detail next week. And we'll uh, push pause uh, going through verses 10 through 16 to look at 1 Timothy 3, uh, 8 through 16, which addresses deacons and deaconesses. <clears throat> But today we're looking at the elders, as Paul calls them here. Uh, there are three words in the New Testament all refer to the same office. Those three words are pastor, elder, and overseer. It's funny that the word often used most in the church today is actually the word used least in the New Testament. Uh, the word pastor, which we commonly use in Protestant uh, churches, uh, is, is, the most, um, is, is only used once in Ephesians 4.11. But... Uh, as I'm going to show you in a minute, I think it's used synonymously with the terms elders and overseer. Um, we see this in our own passage. If you look at verse 5, Paul says he leaves Titus to appoint elders in every town. But then in verse 7, he's talking about appointing elders and giving qualifications. He says in verse 7, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He's, he's talking about elders and an overseer in a way that they're synonymous. He's not saying you need to appoint elders and, oh, by the way, appoint an overseer over here. These terms are being used synonymously. And if you look at 1 Timothy 3, the other passage that addresses the qualifications of, of the, the office of elder or uh, overseer, you see uh, these same words being used. <clears throat> and as I mentioned, the term pastor is used in, in Ephesians 4, chapter 11. But we see <clears throat> often elder and overseer, the same qualifications are given for them, that uh, the First uh, Timothy 3, 4 through 5 says the overseer is to rule or manage his own house uh, because he, in such a way that's fitting for him to rule or manage the church. And in 1 Timothy 5, 17, Paul speaks of elders who rule well. Same, same characteristic, same qualification referring to elder and overseer. 1 Timothy 3, 2, Titus 1, 9, we see uh, overseers are to be able to teach and give instruction in God's word. In 1 Timothy 5, 17, it says an overseer to be one who teaches God's word. 
But, but all of this actually comes together in 1 Peter 5. I want you to, I know I'm giving you some uh, uh, flipping around. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5, because I think 1 Peter brings all of these terms together uh, in one place in a very helpful way. Peter writing to the church that's been kind of a church that's scattered because of persecution. Uh, to the leaders, he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as the partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. And this is, this is the word for pastor. Shepherd the flock of God among you. So elders are to shepherd, which is in reference to the role of a pastor. Uh, exercising oversight. That's the work of an overseer. Uh, managing, uh, leading the church. <clears throat> not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So, why the different terms, right? We got all these different terms. I'm telling you they're used synonymously, interchangeably. Well, it's not that they all... Uh, mean exactly the same thing. They emphasize different things, even though they refer to the same office. And uh, part of this has to do with the Jewish-Gentile dynamic of the church. The term elders was often used in Jewish context, whereas overseer seems to be favored in Gentile context, referring to the same office, but bringing out different aspects of it. So you could say, you could say it this way. Elder is, is a term that primarily refers to dignity and character. It refers to one who is wise, mature, and who's honored and respected by those in the community, within the church and even outside the church. Overseer and pastor are, are terms that refer to function because one who leads the church has the duty of leading or overseeing God's people and protecting and caring for those entrusted to him, which involves teaching God's word as a primary responsibility. So this is the, uh, the office of of pastor is how I primarily refer to it, but you'll also hear me refer to it as elder. Um, we often don't use the word overseer. Uh, today, uh, we use those two terms most frequently, but either way, whichever one I'm referring to, it's referring to the same office, and you can see this through looking at these passages and the scriptures. And so Paul says, appoint elders in every town, those who uh, are upright in character and those who are entrusted with leading the church and caring for the people of God, especially through the teaching of God's Word. Now, <clears throat> as I mentioned this, there's also something else that's significant about these terms as they're used. When you look at the New Testament, both in Acts and in Paul's letters, uh, every time that it mentions elders, it mentions them in the plural. There doesn't ever appear to be a solo leader of a church. Uh, the model it's not prescribed, we can say this as we look at the scriptures often, especially when we look at the book of Acts, we see things that are descriptive and things that are prescriptive. However, when we see something so descriptive that it seems like a model, it's wise for us to pay attention to it. And that's what we do as we look at this reference to elders in the plural often throughout the New Testament. In fact, exclusively, there's only elders in the plural in the New Testament. And what this shows us is that it's best to practice, in our mind, uh, from looking at God's word, a plurality of pastors or elders. So we see on a local church level, the New Testament primarily witnesses this consistent pattern of shared pastoral leadership. And I, I want to press in here because I believe 
uh, and, and we practice as a church a plurality of elders or pastors as a sound biblical practice for a few reasons that I just want to encourage us and, uh, and, and exhort you to hold this in high esteem. <clears throat> here's, here's at least five benefits <clears throat> to a plurality of pastors. One, it provides biblical accountability. No one pastor calls to all the shots. Um, <clears throat> there's accountability in how we live, how we teach, how we lead. In addition to sharing authority amongst those pastors or elders, it, it also um, <clears throat> enables us to protect the church so that there's not a lording over. You see that in First Peter, that, that the leadership of the church isn't to be domineering. And um, through a plurality of pastors, we have that accountability. It also provides wisdom. No one person is competent to make all decisions. There's wisdom in a multitude of counselors, and that's built in by a plurality of elders. There's also balance. Not, no one pastor has all the gifts that's needed to, to shepherd the varied people of God entrusted to their care. And having a plurality of pastors helps um, bring in uh, those with different gifts into the leadership of the church who can um, work together to shepherd the church. It allows for burden sharing. That the, the role of a pastor uh, isn't, uh, isn't put upon him solely uh, to care for the people or to teach God's people, but that's shared amongst God's people. We, we see this in Acts 20, 28. There's uh, this picture of Paul meeting with the elders at Ephesus, and it's probably the last time that he sees them, and he exhorts them to shepherd uh, the people that God has entrusted to him, that he's purchased by his blood, and to proclaim the whole counsel of God's word. That's a responsibility that can't be carried by one person that must be shared by a plurality of pastors. And then it sets an example for the church. It demonstrates that the work of ministry isn't just reserved for a few. And in particular, we seek to, to practice a model of a plurality of pastors where we have both pastors who are supported by the church as full-time pastors and those who, who are not. Who, who have a job and who work, and I just happen to be pointing this direction. Pastor Chris is that one. I'm over on this direction as I'm supported by the church, and that, that does two things. It, it, it speaks to accountability. My, my livelihood is dependent on the work that I do, uh, so that could sway me to make a bad decision, but I have a pastor whose livelihood isn't dependent on it who says um, that this is what we must do, that we can work together in those ways, but it models, and, and especially it models that that ministry isn't for some and not for all. I am no more a pastor than Pastor Chris is a pastor. His responsibility to shepherd you is the same as mine. I have no more authority than my fellow pastor. We work together and lead together. And as we gain more pastors, our desire is to continually work towards having a balance, both of those who are supported by the church as well as those who are by vocational. This is healthy for the church. This is a model that we see in Scripture that's described, that we feel wise and prudent for us to practice as the local church. And this is what Paul tells Titus to do. Appoint elders, in the plural, in every church, in every town. Leadership is foundational to the church. And Paul leads with this instruction. And just, just as we think about what this means as a, as a young church plant, is to put a high priority on recognizing and trusting faithful leaders. Second thing we see in verses 6 through 8 is that character is essential for the leaders of the church. You see, Paul's central concern as he lists these qualifications, it isn't competency. He only mentions one aspect of competency, and that involves teaching. <clears throat> it's, it's not charisma. 
It's not that, man, this guy's got to draw a crowd. It's, it's not that uh, these, these folks have to have a, a great marketing strategy or a great plan to execute. His central concern is the character of the church's leaders. And it's important to note that the character traits that he lists aren't particularly all that unique. God calls all of his people to live holy lives. God calls all of his people to be upright in character. In fact, in Titus, we see that the gospel, the grace of God, teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Do you know those three terms are also qualifications for a pastor? But they're entrusted, they're put upon the whole church. The whole church, all God's people are called to be hospitable, not quarrelsome or arrogant or quick-tempered, not to get drunk, not to be violent, not to be greedy for gain. All of these characteristics are true for the whole body of Christ. In fact, the the thing about the list, as one commentator says, the list is remarkable for being unremarkable. All of these characteristics are entrusted to all believers. So what we see is that the pastor is called to to lead the church and and setting an example. And not being a super-Christian, but being a faithful Christian. Not being a perfect Christian, but being a repentant Christian who leads God's people in following Christ. I, I think it's helpful, if we can, to, to put up 1 Timothy 3, 2-7, through 7, and Titus 1, 6-9. These are the two places in Scripture where we see qualifications for elders or for pastors. And the list uh, has a lot of similarities and overlaps. We see how it begins the same with being above reproach and the husband of one wife. The, the other qualifications at times overlap, but they're not... They're not exactly the same. However, where they don't overlap, there's general, um, uh, general similarity. <clears throat> the concepts uh, overlap. But as you look at this list, <clears throat> and the next slide with it, what you see is that the thing that matters most to Paul when he, when he thought about appointing elders, pastors in the local church, was character. Character was supreme. And what I want us to do in Titus 1 six through eight, is just walk through these character traits and spend some time thinking about them. And as I say these, as we look at these character traits, they're character traits that you should measure and evaluate your pastors on, that those within the church, men who aspire to be pastors, should evaluate themselves in light of, but that all of God's people should look at and desire for these things to be true of us. The first first characteristic that we see, the first qualification that he gives is an overarching qualification. It's to be above reproach, to be blameless, not liable to accusation or question as to personal character and integrity. As I mentioned earlier, it's not a call to perfection, but to godliness. Godliness in his marriage, godliness in his family, godliness in his personal life, in all of his relationships. Pastors aren't super Christians, but commendable Christians, whose life and practice sets an example to follow in their godliness. And he says this in verse uh, 6, that they're to be above reproach, and in verse 7 he re-emphasizes it just to, uh, to demonstrate its significance. An overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. And so in some ways as we look at all of these, we, we could say that he must be blameless in marriage and in family, blameless in relationships if not married, and purity, blameless in personal conduct and relationships with others, blameless in doctrinal fidelity and faithfulness to God's word. That's kind of the overarching category that describes the life of a pastor. Not perfect, 
but commendable as a follower of Christ and an example of godliness. And the first thing that he mentions is, and it's the same in 1 Timothy 3 as well as Titus 1, is to be a husband of one wife. Literally, it means to be a one-woman man is the characteristic. As Paul refers, if you look in 1 Timothy 3, as he writes to a little bit of an older church, uh, the church at Ephesus that had been around a while, he also exhorts them to establish deacons. And he speaks of deacons also having this characteristic, uh, but particularly, as you look at the qualifications uh, for deacons, we have, we have a, uh, an emphasis that's also put upon the wives um, there in 1 Timothy 3, who are to uh, be dignified, not slanderous, sober-minded, faithful in all things. <clears throat> Here in Titus 1.6, we see this call to be a one-woman man, which is the emphasis is upon faithfulness in marriage, particularly faithfulness and sexual fidelity. If married, a pastor is to have a strong marriage, a marriage marked by faithfulness to his wife, purity and fidelity in every way. He's to demonstrate commitment and care for his wife and exhibit fidelity in his interaction and relationships with others. In the the early church, Ignatius, the early church father, talked about four things that often tripped up believers that they needed to focus on for their discipleship. Among them, uh, he said, was magic and uh, and somebody recently said, if you replace magic with technology, it's, it's often very similar. But the, the areas that he impressed upon them was sexual, out, sexual immorality, the love of money, magic, he says, and ethnic hatred. Those are the four areas that needed to be focused upon for discipleship. 2,000 years later, I think those are true as well. And Paul knew it well and told Titus to appoint pastors who are faithful in their marriage and pure in their relationships. But this one characteristic brings up a, a whole lot of questions. So to be faithful as a husband, to be a one-woman man, as it said, brings up a number of questions. The first of which is, and the primary uh, issue that many people discuss in relation to this qualification is the issue of divorce. Can someone who has been divorced serve as a pastor? This is obviously a deeply sensitive issue. It's a debated issue within the church. My understanding in the New Testament, there are certain grounds that make divorce permissible, never commanded. Among them are adultery and abandonment, and by extension, I believe, abuse. However, with that said, I believe the decision of one serving as a pastor who's having been divorced requires careful thought and examination. If that person perhaps was divorced before they became a believer... What were the circumstances that led to that? What is the pattern of their life since then? Are they remarried? Was their divorce on biblical grounds? Is there faithfulness in their present marriage? These are the questions that have to be asked. And if the answer is arrived at in a, in a positive uh, direction, then the question has to be asked, is it wise to entrust leadership in this congregation to a church? Will they be above reproach? Will their leadership be trusted? And ultimately, if a man who is serving as a pastor gets divorced while serving, I believe that that pastor must step down regardless of the, quali- regardless of the circumstances and often is disqualified from serving as a pastor in the future. That has nothing to do with the ability to be forgiven and for the marriage to be restored or to even be restored to ministry in some sense. But to be restored to serving as a pastor is another issue. This is just one of the issues that's addressed by this. The second is the issue of singleness. 
does this mean that a pastor must be married uh, in order to serve as a pastor? And further, does it mean that a pastor must be married with multiple children? Because in verse, in the second part of verse 6, it says that he is to have his children uh, who uh, are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. I don't think that that's what Paul is saying. If Paul wished to do this, he would have said that a pastor must be the husband of a wife, not a one-woman man. <clears throat> Furthermore, to say this would have been to eliminate Jesus from serving as a pastor, or for Paul serving as a pastor, from what we know, Titus, who wasn't married or had children, from serving as a pastor. And we know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, that there are many advantages to singleness over marriage. <clears throat> However, I believe it was often uh, the practice that uh, men would, would be married and that those who would be entrusted with leadership were married. But if those who weren't, uh, today if we apply this to those who are single, there must be a life and a pattern marked by purity and integrity in their interactions with other women. And all of this raises perhaps the, the hairiest question of all in our context and our culture is what does this mean? Are you saying that only men can serve as pastors? I do believe that this puts a limitation, this qualification of being a one-woman man along with other passages in Scripture, point to the role of a pastor being for certain men whose character matches these qualifications. Now, I arrive at this conclusion, and Pastor Chris and I share this conclusion uh, from studying God's Word, number one, uh, but, but also by considering and listening to other uh, biblical scholars and theologians, other pastors, other leaders, in fact, both men and women, on this issue, out of the desire both to understand that in the church there are those who, uh, who hold one view, which is considered egalitarianism, which sees no distinction in roles that men and women can have within the church, and uh, what we would uh, define and practice as complementarianism, that sees uh, equal status and dignity and worth and uh, calling to, to serve the church with distinction in certain roles. <clears throat> So we've come to this from, from listening to these others and having these conversations. And I, what I want to do is to encourage you to think about this in the same way. Three, three people I would encourage you to, to and, and read who I think have an understanding on this. One is actually my, my major professor for my, my own dissertation, Benjamin Merkel. He's a professor at Southeastern. He's written a great book called 40 Questions on Elders and Deacons uh, that, that lays out uh, a number of the questions that arise from these issues. The second is Jen Wilkin, who serves on staff at a church in Texas called the Village Church and uh, who speaks on a podcast. A number of you have participated in her Bible study. We use Bible study through the book of James. Um, <clears throat> Jen has a significant role there at, uh, at, at the Village Church. And she has a talk on Acts 29, if you look it up, entitled, Women are Essential and Indispensable to the Mission of the Church. Perhaps one of the, the most helpful uh, at, at addressing, uh, at times, what's been the uh, the abuse of male leadership in the church and the failure to, to equip and entrust um, ministry opportunity to women within the context of the church. Very helpful uh, talk that she gave at Acts 29 conference. And then Jonathan Lehman, uh, who's a pastor and also uh, works with an organization called Nine Marks, in fact, interacted with Jen's talk uh, at Acts 29 in a very helpful, affirming way. Uh, and I would encourage you to listen to all three of those, of those authors, all three of those uh, resources, uh, as I think they're helpful and, and they acknowledge different perspectives, but seek to, to wrestle with the text and, and affirm a complementarian role. So as I say this, I, 
I, I want to press in just a little bit here to recognize <clears throat> there are some who, who would hold, as I mentioned earlier, a position called egalitarianism that would say that there, there should be no role distinction between men and women. Galatians 3.28 serves as an example of uh, the redemption of Christ. Uh, this position would say that removes role distinctions. Um, secondly, they affirm, and this part I don't agree with the first part, but this part I agree with, that women played a significant role in the ministry of Jesus in the early church. Just think of Phoebe and Priscilla and Junia and Judea and Syntyche and Philippians that served side by side with Paul in the gospel. Just think of the upper room where the disciples were gathered with the women, Mary and the other women in the early church. Women have played, as Jen Wilkins says, an indispensable and essential role in the life and the mission of the church. And furthermore, we see in 1 Corinthians that women pray and prophesy within the church. And, and the sticking point with the egalitarian position is that in passages like Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12, that appear to limit the role of a pastor to a woman and the function of a pastor, excuse me, to a man, uh, on the surface, if you read those, that's the conclusion that you would come with. But this position would say that these issues are cultural issues that are not binding today. Um, <clears throat> I don't believe this is the best understanding of the teaching of Scripture or, or what we practice here at PCC. I believe it's important to understand and know what we're talking about. Um, and, and as a pastor, I feel it important for us as we look at Scripture to understand. I think the way we approach this, is, it isn't any just one passage that says, look, this is what it says. It's an understanding of specific passages, but it's also an understanding of the biblical framework of God's design, His good order for men and women in the context of the home and the church, and as a part of his kingdom. And we see the Bible teaches that God created men and women to be complementary sexes, male and female. He made us in his image. This distinction, this gender distinction, is part of how God has made us. Men and women are not interchangeable. And, and I believe even as we seek to be faithful to God's word, that's, that's a statement that's not, um, not acceptable in our culture. And it's not, it's not a statement that should make us a people who are hateful and, and, and who seek to um, uh, other, other people who, who are different, particularly as it relates to the issue of transgenderism. But it, it calls us to be people who love and are compassionate and yet who are convictional in what we believe the Bible is teaching. Not that this is just what I think and you're wrong, but this is what God has given us as his good order for creation. This is what he's entrusted to us to serve his purposes in creation in the church. And there's a complementary design. It's not a, merely a social contract. No doubt there are aspects of, um, <clears throat> of social uh, emphasis that are put upon men and women that we could have another conversation about, but the distinction between men and women and these distinctive roles that are reflected in them is given for our good. And in God's wisdom, he's given this not only for our good, but his glory. And so men and women share God's image, share in the full dignity and worth and value that we are made by God and for God. And God intends for men and women who have these different roles uh, to be reflected in responsibilities in the church and the home. We looked at Ephesians 4 earlier this year in our sermon series on Ephesians. <clears throat> but here we're seeing it in the context of the church. God calls men and women to labor alongside one another for the kingdom. Both sexes, in complementarian partnership, serve together to advance the gospel. And when we don't, we hurt both the church and actually both sexes because we're not doing what God has, has given to us and entrusted faithfully, uh, carrying out what God has entrusted to us. 
So we want to see men and women actively participating in the life of the church, serving and leading in various capacities. And yet as we study these scriptures, Titus 1, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12, where, where one side would say these are cultural dynamics that aren't binding on us today, we would say there doesn't seem to be a cultural emphasis in these passages, but a creational emphasis so that God has, has designed these in such a way that it reflects his purposes in creation. And so apart from the role of a pastor or elder, we believe the Bible explicitly encourages and even assumes that women will be involved in the ministry of the church. Pastors are not called to lead as men and for men. Pastors are called to lead God's people, men and women, to fulfill the mission that God has given us to make disciples. And if you just look at the numbers, God has set up the church to be where it's often over 50% women. And this isn't... This isn't uh, something that men are leading for their own sake, but leading for the people of God. And where sexism has stifled women using their gifts in the church, we, we should lament and turn from that and commit ourselves to being a church that upholds a biblical view of men and women within the local church, affirming qualified men to serve as pastors who have godly character and biblical faithfulness, and affirming and cultivating women, often, uh, not often, but including alongside other men, not serving as pastors, to use their gifts to serve and build up the church. Complementarianism, in no way from what I've defined it, how I've defined it, diminishes the importance or the influence that women have within the church. The indispensable, essential help that women were created to give can and should be exercised in all manner of roles and positions in the, in the church except those reserved for the role of pastor and elder. And so as a church, we share this and share the, uh, the dynamic of coming to this conclusion uh, to, to exhort us to think faithfully about God's word, and to think faithfully about how we entrust leadership to pastors, but also this brings up the broader issue of how we carry out our mission together, men and women. And too often we're set up to compete against one another, or we're set up to limit and stifle the work that can be done by both, not appreciating the gifts that God has given us, the complementarian nature and how God has designed us, and recognizing it as good for his purpose and for his mission that he's entrusted to us. I'm sure that won't be controversial to anyone, but I would welcome um, and, and love to have these conversations uh, as we think through these issues and seek to, uh, to understand God's word together. Uh, and I believe that's what God calls us as his people to do. No question too difficult or too hairy to engage. We come to God's word and we ask him to help us understand it and carry it out. So we see this qualification of one woman man. I told you there are a number of issues that came up uh, from it. But secondly, we see the importance of parenting, as it says at the continuation of verse 6, <clears throat> that the husband of one wife and his children are believers not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. I'll be honest, I've scratched my head at how... Uh, to understand this, a, a practical tip uh, for understanding um, Scripture is to seek to understand it in light of other clear passages when something's difficult. So on the surface, this says a pastor's children are to be believers, um, and they're to have multiple children if you just took it uh, literally as that. But First Timothy 3, 4 reads this way. It says, <clears throat> Paul says that an overseer is to manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. It seems that the point uh, that Paul gives, uh, if we're to read 1 Timothy 3, 4 and Titus 1, 6 together, is upon the managing of one's household. It certainly includes teaching the gospel and raising children up in the faith, 
uh, but it also really the emphasis is not on the uh, the status of the children's salvation, but upon the uh, the this really the the function of the of the pastor's parenting of his uh, leadership in the home, and that his children aren't dismissive of uh, his leadership. And, of course, this doesn't require one uh, moment of observation, but a pattern of observation. Uh, and it must distinguish between what is disobedient and what is childish. Uh, and if you have interacted with children, you know that there is childish things that children do, and then there's disobedient things that children do. And this doesn't require perfect obedience, but this requires, in the same way as we talk about character, faithful parenting. And so it seems unlikely that pastor would expect the pastors at Ephesus to have children merely who are submissive while expecting the pastors at Crete to have children who are believers. I think the, the better understanding of the word, in fact, the Christian Standard Bible as well as the New King James translate it in this way, the, the adjective for believer is the same adjective for the word faithful. To have faithful children not accused of wildness or rebellion. So the main point Paul is talking about here is a pastor managing his household. <clears throat> because if it says in verse 7, you're to manage God's people. And if you cannot manage your household, how can you manage the household of God? <clears throat> and if a pastor serves who is single, as in the same way as we talked about in relation uh, to marriage, a pastor uh, who's single has relationships with others and his ability to minister to children become especially important and a measuring stick for how he would lead and serve the church, our ways in which we would understand this teaching. So we see blameless in uh, his relationships and his family. And then it moves on in verse 7 to blameless in his uh, personal character. And verse 7 gives five negative qualifications or characteristics. And then we see six positive ones. <clears throat> and, and really the term self-controlled, which is used in verse 8 and, and dis discipline, uh, is really the characteristic feature of this, that, his, that he would lead himself well. Now again, I've said these all apply to every believer. So let's all examine our own selves as we look at these. Look at these uh, negative uh, characteristics. They really are the temptations of pride, temper, drink, power, and authority. Not arrogance. Someone who doesn't listen to criticism or feedback. It demands their own way. We know that God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Quick-tempered, easily irritated, and impatient. Elders must, deal with, must patiently deal with difficult and emotionally charged issues. Not a drunkard. The Bible nowhere condemns drinking alcohol, but it condemns and prohibits excessive drinking and drunkenness. I believe some go too far in prohibiting pastors to abstain from alcohol, while others seem careless at times with their view of alcohol, and it has indeed proven to be a snare for many. So we must seek to stay what the Bible says, not go beyond it. It condemns drunkenness, not being violent, pugnacious is the, the term, not acting on a bad temper in actions or words. Pastors are to be self-controlled, addressing tense and difficult circumstances. Not greedy for gain, either being consumed with money or using the role of the pastor to gain money and to gain status for themselves. All of these things reflect a lack of leading oneself, a lack of self-control, which reflects a lack of dependence on the Spirit because self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, as we see in Galatians 5. But then he goes to the positive qualifications. Hospitable. An elder is to open his home and life to others. This isn't merely uh, uh, just the sense of entertainment, but is the uh, sacrificial, stretching type of service towards others. 
a lover of good, which implies generosity and willingness to help others and seek their good, a supporter of what's praiseworthy. Someone who's self-control, which speaks of sound judgment, upright, which is a reflection of our character with others, that we, we seek to be just and righteous in our interactions with others, in our pursuit to do what is right, holy in our devotion to God, discipline, similar to self-control, leading oneself. These are the characteristics that God has given pastors. They're to be commendable Christians in their character. And as I say this, I mentioned earlier, a pastor isn't a super Christian, but is a repentant Christian. Pastors not only set an example, but they set an example of what to do when they don't do what they should do. Even this week, I had to ask for forgiveness for my own character, my own response to a circumstance last week in which I allowed my emotions to be worn on my sleeve and responded in frustration to a circumstance. I I was comforted and convicted by this quote from a pastor, Jack Miller. He said, if the pastor, or this could be applied to a parent or anyone in leadership, is not the chief repenter, What he's saying is is that the pastor must allow the gospel to work in his own life. The pastor must feel the weight and conviction of sin and repent of sin and walk in obedience to God. The pastor must apply the gospel to their life. A good, good behavior doesn't make a Christian any more than better behavior makes a pastor. What makes a Christian is responding to the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ. What makes a pastor is one who's responded to that good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ and trusted in Him and is allowing that grace, which it talks about in Titus 2, 11 through 15, allowing that grace to transform us and make us more like Christ. The cry of a pastor is to follow me as I follow Christ. That's a scary, humbling thing. It's actually the call upon every believer as they seek to make disciples is to say, follow me. I follow Christ. And to have this type of character can't be done through, through self-will or trying your hardest, but it must be done through humble repentance and confidence in God's grace, allowing it to transform us. I serve not as a pastor who's figured out how to be perfect, but as a pastor who knows that God's grace is greater than my sin and is not content to allow sin to remain while God calls me to be more like him and I want the same for us as a church that's what God's calling us to be and the final point that we'll just close with here quickly is biblical faithfulness is essential for the leaders of the church in first Timothy 3 Paul says that a, a pastor and elders to be able to teach that's all he says but here in Titus if you look in verse 9 it speaks about the heart of a pastor towards God's word before it speaks of his responsibility This is the only qualification that talks about competency. The only qualification that talks about what a pastor is to do. All the others focus on character. This one focuses on their role. They must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so they may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and able to rebuke those who contradict it. Devotion to God's word. Biblical faithfulness. This is what Paul calls pastors to 
God's Word as taught by the apostles in accordance with the gospel would become the, the New Testament, what we know as the New Testament. That New Testament and the apostles' teaching was grounded in the Old Testament. So we see this, this call to hold uh, fast with conviction to the Word of God, Old and New Testament, as true and trustworthy, as inspired, as given to us by God and inerrant, free from fault or error. It's our final authority. As pastors, we serve as those under authority. And then those who have this devotion to God's word have a task to instruct in sound doctrine and to confront false teaching. To teach God's word that leads to sound doctrine, that produces godliness, as well as to correct those who err from it. I love how John Calvin puts it. A pastor needs two voices. One for gathering the sheep and one for driving away wolves and thieves. That's what a pastor does. A pastor seeks to be faithful in his character and faithful in his devotion to God's word so that he might instruct the church according to God's word and sound doctrine to build it up, to make it healthy and whole, seeking to fend off false teaching that would come against Christ and the uh, the claims of the gospel, warning, exhorting, encouraging, shepherding God's people through the teaching of God's word. That's what I pray you have found in your leadership at TCC and what you continue to find. That's what I pray God calls out of those who aspire to serve in this capacity and produces in us as his people. Paul left Titus on Crete and said there's something important that you need to do. Appoint faithful leaders in the church, pastors, elders, who are strong in their character, faithful in their character, and faithful in their commitment to God's word. I pray that's what God helps us to do here at TCC as we seek to grow into who he wants us to be. Let's pray and we'll continue in worship.